So this um, this message I've I've had on my heart for a while, really, um, back to when Pastor shared his vision for the year of We Stand, and I was like, oh, I've got something. So um, I am excited to share this. Uh, I hope it, that it's going to be an encouraging word for everyone, um, and we're going to have a good old fashioned Bible study tonight. So we are lots of scriptures. I am Jamie's favorite person right now because. She's just going to be clicking away all night, but um, we're going to be encouraged by God's word. So if y'all want to turn to Acts chapter 1, we're going to read verse 8, and then we're going to go to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. So 1, 8, and then 8, 1. And if you don't have it, you can follow along on the screens. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then flip a few pages to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, which says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so from these two scriptures, I'd like to talk for a little bit tonight from the title, Persecuted for a Purpose. All right, let's pray over the word. Lord, right now, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to me, that you'd speak through me, or that you would let your word fall on good ground tonight. Let us apply it to our lives apply it to our hearts, Lord, that your word would fall on good ground, that it would not return void, Lord, but that would be, we would be changed by this word tonight, and that we would be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this opening text I shared, these two scriptures, is something really cool that I saw a couple years ago, and I was like, oh man, that's awesome. I'm going to have to talk about that someday. And part of it is because of the numbers, you know, it's 1-8 and then 8-1, and I like numbers, and so I, I saw that, and uh, nobody else probably would enjoy that, but uh, I did. So there's that. But it's um, going between the two verses is there's a lot of parallels here that I think speaks to something greater. But to give a little bit of context, we're going to flip back to Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 46. Now, Luke wrote the book of Acts, so Acts is really a sequel to the gospel of Luke. And I know the Bible, it goes Luke, John, Acts, but um, you know, it's cool to read straight from Luke to Acts because you can kind of see the continuation of Luke's gospel. But starting in verse 46, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is Jesus and the disciples. And said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So basically Jesus is saying, hey, I died, I suffered, I've resurrected, and I'm here. And that is the gospel message. And you're going to preach this to all nations. But first, it's going to start in Jerusalem. 
and you have to wait in Jerusalem because I'm going to send the promise of my Father, which we all know is the Holy Spirit, and you will be clothed with power. So you've got to wait in Jerusalem. You've got to wait. I know Pastor just talked about the promise and the process on Sunday, and it's a similar thing here. You know, the disciples have been given a promise of the power that is to come, but they have to wait. And so while they're waiting, they go pray. And so the day of Pentecost happens, and so this is a strategic thing here. So the day of Pentecost was a feast, actually, in Jewish tradition, and it was a pilgrimage holiday where all the Jews would come from wherever they lived to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And so when the disciples and their friends, the the 120 in the upper room, come out speaking in tongues, all these Jews are like, well, they don't speak my language. How are they, how am I understanding them? How are are they speaking my language? And of course, we know that is through the power of God. And so then Peter preaches the day of Pentecost message, the Acts 2.38 salvation message, and talks about a promise, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And 3,000 people are added to the church in one day. And there it is. There is the preaching of the gospel for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. And so Acts chapter 3, verse 7, the story continues, and we can see the church growing in Jerusalem. We can see Peter and John healing a lame man at the temple. We can see them talking at Solomon's portico, and people say, how are these unlearned fishermen so knowledgeable about God's word? And it's, again, because Jesus said that God will speak through you, that you don't have to know it, but that God will speak through you. And so the church is growing. There's signs and wonders and miracles, and then resistance comes. And Acts chapter 7 tells us of Stephen and his sermon and then his stoning. Not that Stephen, um, a different one. But, yeah, praise God. (laughs) Um, But Stephen is stoned. And this is found at the the end of Acts chapter 7. And it says that there's a young man there by the name of Saul and that the stoners laid down their coats at the feet of Saul. And so he's sitting there and says that he approved of his execution. And so we'll go back to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And again, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. This is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So for the purpose that Jesus gave the disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 to be fulfilled, there had to be the great persecution of Acts chapter 8 verse 1. So they were persecuted for a purpose. They were comfortable in Jerusalem. It was the original place that the Spirit had been poured out. They had seen miracles there. They had been staying there. God said to wait there, but that was never the plan. The plan was never for them to stay in Jerusalem. It was to leave Jerusalem and preach the whole gospel to the whole world. And so Jesus had to leave them with no choice. They couldn't stay in Jerusalem anymore for the great persecution because Saul was ravaging the church, carrying them off to prison and doing whatever it took to stop the growth. But ironically, that persecution led to an exponential growth for the church and the ability to reach people like the Samaritans and Philip's eunuch and Cornelius all throughout the book of Acts. So persecution led to growth. 
for the church. And this idea of persecution leading to growth can be traced all the way back to Exodus. So the Israelites had moved into the land of Goshen in Egypt after Joseph saved everyone from the famine, and generations goes by, and eventually there arises a pharaoh who knows not Joseph. He forgot about Joseph and all that he had done for the Egyptians, that he had saved them from a famine, and he sees the Israelites as a threat. And so he enslaves them forcefully and tries to make their lives as miserable as possible. But despite this, they grow. For Exodus chapter 1 verse 12 says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They were scared of them. The the mighty Egyptians, the greatest empire at the time, was in dread of this tiny nation of Israel because they were growing and because God's favor was was on them. So oppression led to growth. So persecution led to growth for the church in Acts chapter 8, and then oppression leads to growth for the Israelites in Exodus chapter 1. It says that the Egyptians feared them. And this so crazy story here is that, so when God is, is sharing with Moses about this Exodus, he says that when you leave, you're going to go ask the Egyptians for all of their gold and their silver and all their fancy things. And that they're going to give it to you. That these people who are scared of you, that you are leaving, God's going to give you favor over them. And this exact thing happens when the Israelites are leaving the night of the Passover, when the Exodus finally happens. It says that they asked the Egyptians for everything that they had, and they gave it to them. It says that they plundered the Egyptians. So they left with the best things of Egypt. Because they were scared. So when we are persecuted or mocked or questioned for our beliefs, most of the time that's coming from a place of fear or a lack of understanding. And so we don't need to get defensive. We don't need to get hostile. But we need to know that that's our opportunity to share of what God has done in us, of why we do what we do. But I will say the enemy is most definitely scared of me and you. And his goal is to persecute us to the point of giving up. Just like Pharaoh thought, well, if I oppress the Egyptians, or if I oppress the Israelites, they won't be able to rebel. They won't be able to revolt. They won't be able to rise against us if I oppress them. But they grew despite it. And just how Saul persecuted the church, thinking that the disciples and the apostles would give up, they didn't. And instead, the church grew. Because what the enemy means for evil, God turns for good. And that's why in countries all over the world right now, there is revival happening under intense persecution, even to the threat of death. We even had someone from our church, who I won't name, go to a country that I can't name because of the intense persecution they're facing them, even to the threat of death. But it's in these hardest situations that the love and the power of God shines the most. Because when it's darkest, that's when the light is most needed. And that's why I believe there is persecution coming to the North American church. We've had it pretty good in America. It's been good to be a Christian due to the faith of our founding fathers 
and laws like the freedom of religion. And even though culture is shifting further and further away from God, it's still not illegal to be a Christian. We still print in God we trust on our money and our license plates. The Pledge of Allegiance still says one nation under God. And the Super Bowl winning quarterback this year felt no issue giving glory to God before saying anything else in his post-game interview. Now that all might be about to change with politicians and all that's going on in our crazy country. But even if that does, why should we worry? Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he says, why should you fear the one who can harm your body but not your soul? David himself wrote in Psalms 27 verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And later in Psalms chapter 56, when David was undergoing some hard times himself, he said, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And then skip down to verse 10, he says, In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So we don't need to worry about what's going to happen to us because God's already got it. God's in control. God is sovereign. But I also believe that when we begin to see persecution here in America, we can know that the greatest revival we have ever seen is right around the corner. When it becomes illegal to go to church or to pray in Jesus' name, that's when we'll find out who's really desperate for Jesus. And the revival will work through and come to those desperate people. Not just those who have a Bible verse in their Instagram bio or show up to church once a month, once a year, but those who are desperate for Jesus, who know that when it's inconvenient to follow Jesus, it's still worth it. And that's who that revival is going to come through. So I've talked about church persecution and and what happened in the Bible and what we can expect, but now I want to talk on a personal level about what we face on a day-to-day basis. And so the first thing I want to say is that we are never promised an easy life in this walk with God. If anybody ever told you that, they were wrong. Jesus himself says in John chapter 16, verse 33, said, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, or be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation. Not you might, not maybe, not 30% of the time. You will have tribulation. And the tribulation here in the Greek comes from the word philipsis, which means to crush, to press together, to compress, to squeeze in. It's, it's derived from the word thlau, which means to break. It originally expressed sheer physical pressure on a person. This, this term philipsis, it's a strong term which, is not ref, which does not refer to minor inconveniences, but rather real hardships. This isn't car troubles or it being cold and then it being hot and then it being cold again, but real hardships. We're promised these. 
We are promised these in Scripture. This is a promise that most people probably don't like, but we're promised these. But we can take comfort in the fact that because Jesus overcame the world, we can and we will overcome whatever life throws our way. So what's the purpose of these hardships? Paul tries to help us out in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, not begrudgingly acknowledge that they're good. We rejoice knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Last month, I was talking in youth class and was talking about how our thoughts become our actions and our actions become our habits and our habits become our character. And so what you think becomes what you do and what you do is who you are. And that's not what I'm going to talk about tonight. But, but Scripture here tells us that suffering leads to endurance or patience. That the more we suffer, then the more we endure. And that the more we endure, our character grows. Because the more we go through, the more we grow. And then finally, that leads to a hope. That the character that God produces in us has hope. Because the things we experience on earth give us hope of what's to come. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 tells us that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Every hardship we face is one step closer to the hope that we have in heaven and spending eternity with Jesus, where there's no tribulation, no suffering, no hardships, and no persecution. And because of that, we can have hope that no matter what happens to us on earth, there is something greater coming our way. Another outcome of the hardships that we face is that it leads to greater reliance on God. Because when what we're facing is out of our control, it can be tough. But we know that nothing is out of control for God who holds the world in his hands. A great example of this in Scripture is the Israelites in the wilderness. They were in an unfamiliar land with no real ways to provide for or protect themselves. And because of this, they were completely reliant on God. When they needed food, he provided manna and quail. When they needed water, it sprang forth from a rock. When they needed light and protection, he gave them pillars of cloud and fire. And when they needed a way made, he parted the Red Sea. They were completely reliant on God. In modern culture, this reliance on God is almost non-existent. It's easy to get caught in the day-to-day and say, well, I'm the one who works, and I'm the one whose name is on the paycheck, and I'm the one buying groceries and paying the light bill and all those things. But the principle still remains that we are not fully able to depend on ourselves for our basic needs. We are called to be providers, and we are called to use the abilities and talents given to us. The Bible says, he who doesn't work doesn't eat. But we should still be reliant on God for what we need. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, 
Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we focus on God, his righteousness, and his kingdom, or his work, everything else will be taken care of. That is a promise in Scripture. But hardships serve as a good reminder that things are out of our control and that we are truly reliant on God. When we lose a job or we lose a loved one or we experience physical or mental or emotional or financial or relational or marital hardships, we realize that we can't do or fix everything. And that is really hard. I don't know if other people struggle with this, but I want to be able to do everything and fix everything. I don't want to have to look anything up or ask for help, and Jordan's nodding a lot right now. But I just want to be able to do it all. I don't want to have to rely on anyone. But hardships remind us that we can't do it all, that some things are out of our control. And oftentimes, it's these situations that bring us closer to God, because sometimes it's the only time that he can get us to pray is when we face hardships. When we have the seven-figure paying job, we might not need to pray versus when we're making seven an hour. Or when the refrigerator and the pantry are full versus when all you've got is ramen. Nothing against ramen. Just want to point that out. That, that, is, that is a true, that, that is the manna from heaven right there. But God will use whatever it takes to get to you. James 5.15 says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I don't think it's an accident that saving and forgiving of sins is mentioned in conjunction with healing. Because maybe God thinks, well, if, if I can get him to come to me for healing, then he'll come to me for salvation. If he can come to me for provision, then he can come to me for salvation. Because God will do whatever it takes to get you to come to him knowing that he is all you need, that he is Jehovah Jireh, our provider, and we don't need to look anywhere else for what we need. So we can trust that in the hardships, God is teaching us something. He's reminding us of our reliance on him. The last purpose of personal persecution or tribulation or hardships is often the blessing that follows the hard times. I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel here, but there are examples in Scripture of really good things following really bad situations. And another 
tidbit from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, Jesus saying, hey, rejoice. Like Paul said, rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice in the hard times. It's, it's really hard, but rejoice. Rejoice when you're persecuted. Rejoice when you suffer, knowing that there's a reward coming. Job is, is a really good example of blessing following not great times. Job was an upright man that had everything. He had the white picket fence and the golden retriever in the backyard, a basketball court, a tennis court, a pool with a slide, a diving board, probably a hot tub, a theater room, maybe a regulation football field somewhere in the back. He had everything. And the devil said, well, hey, God, Job likes you, and Job worships you because he has everything. But if I take away everything, then he's not going to worship you anymore. And God says, all right, you do that. You, just, you can't touch him. You can do anything else. You can't touch him. And so in the matter of moments, Job loses all of his wealth, his children. It's all gone. And he still doesn't curse God. And so the devil goes back and says, okay, well, you didn't let me do everything. You didn't let me harm his body. And God says, okay, you can do that. You just can't kill him. And so the devil inflicts Job with boils where he's scratching himself with concrete, doing whatever it takes, but he still doesn't curse God. He still doesn't sin in his struggle. And although he has lots of questions, and you can read all 37 chapters of those questions, he, all, he, he in fact faces persecution from his friends who say, well, Job, bad things are happening to you, so you must be a bad person. Even though, you know, Jesus said it rains on the just and the unjust, Job's friends say, well, if bad things are happening, it's your fault. God doesn't make mistakes, and God doesn't make mistakes. But it wasn't Job's fault. It was to teach Job a lesson. And so we get to the end of this, and Job maintains his faith, maintains his uprightness, and in a really good cliche, he gets double for his trouble. Whatever he had before, it's increased because he made it through the hard times. Another really good example of this is Daniel and Rack, Shack, and Benny, for you VeggieTales fans. Um, we can do the bunny for altar call tonight. Um, but these are Hebrew young men who are shipped off in captivity to Babylon, and they, they go through these situations, and it's just time after time that God keeps proving himself. When they first get there, the Babylons say, hey, your diet isn't good. You need to diet. You need to eat what we're eating. The world says, hey, what your appetite is isn't good enough. You need our appetite. You need the fun that we're having. You need what we're watching and listening to. Your appetite is just going to lead to boringness. You're going to get tired of that. And Daniel and Rack, Shack, and Benny say, no, we're going to stick to our diet. We're going to do what God has told us to do, and we're going to put you to the test. 
And so they do that. The Babylons eat their diet, and the Hebrews eat their diet. And, if, and they get to the end of the time period, and the Hebrews are stronger and of a more sound mind than the Babylonians eating their diet. Because God was faithful to them for sticking to what they knew to do, for standing for truth. Is going to get to the vision. There we go. For standing on what they knew to do. It leads to, va- it leads to favor and eventual leadership positions for these four Hebrew young men. And then we get to the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar builds a golden image and makes everyone bow down to it. But Rakshak and Benny say, we're only worshiping the one true God of Israel. And so they're thrown into a fiery furnace, but there's another in the fire. And Jesus comes to save them. And there's no evidence of any fire on them when they come out. That prompts Nebuchadnezzar to say, there is no other God like the God of Rakshak and Benny. And they end up with more promotions than they had before. And then finally, the lion's den. Daniel, a man of prayer, is plotted against by officials who are jealous of him. And they convince King Darius to sign a decree that you can only pray to King Darius. And so Daniel doesn't care. He stands on what he knows is true and prays and is thrown in a lion's den, which would surely end not great for him. But God shuts the mouth of the lion's saves Daniel, and these jealous officials are thrown into the lion's den, and their outcome was not as good as Daniel's. And it prompts Darius to say that this is the living God, and it says that Daniel prospers after this encounter. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 tells us this is God speaking to Joshua and his commission as the new leader of the people of Israel. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. You know the only time success is mentioned in the Bible? Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. So if we're asking, how, how can I be successful? How can I have a successful life? Well, here it is. Read the Word, think about the Word, and do the Word. If you do those three things, you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So as long as we are standing on God's word and the truth that he has put in our hearts, we will have good success, and he will make our way prosperous. So when we face the tribulation Jesus talked about in John 16, we can know that it helps us to have hope of what's to come, that it reminds us to be reliant on God, and we can know that something good is coming from it, often much more than was there before. I want to close on a note of encouragement. I told you I was going to encourage you all, so I got to do that at some point. Um, but if musicians want to make their way up here, share two more stories from the Bible. So earlier in Acts chapter 8, we talked about Saul. Saul was this man who, in an attempt to live out his faith, thought that what made the most sense was to persecute the church. And it's his persecution that leads to the growth that we saw in Acts chapter 8. But later, in Acts chapter 9, after he has a, an encounter with Jesus, Jesus knocks him off his horse, says, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? Why are you persecuting me? And eventually Saul after this encounter, 
decides to follow the word of Jesus. And so he goes to Damascus to a man named Ananias. And Ananias is having questions. And if you want to hear more about this, you can listen to Pastor Sermon from two Sundays ago. But again, I just want to draw one thing from this. So Acts chapter 9, verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, or a chosen vessel, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. If you can put verse 15 back up there, I want to emphasize this. He says, He is a chosen, chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles were non-Jews. So for the word to get to the Gentiles, it had to leave Jerusalem. And the only way that it was going to leave Jerusalem was through Saul's persecution. So Saul's persecution led to Paul's purpose. What Saul did laid the groundwork for what Paul was going to do. The staunchest persecutor of the church would become its strongest preacher. And that was the purpose that God had set for Paul from the very beginning. When we come to Christ, we are made a new creation. The old is passed away, but the old becomes our purpose. Like JT preached a while ago, our mess becomes our message. And so Saul's past paved the way for his future. Like Jake talked about at prayer last night, we shouldn't be condemned by our past. And the devil will try to do that over and over again and tell you, well, your past disqualifies you. Your past makes you unfit to carry the gospel, to carry the name of Jesus. But really, your past is what qualifies you. Because that's what Jesus uses for your purpose. Whatever you suffered through will become your purpose. And I want to end with, with one more story. I think I've talked about this every time I preach, so I might as well keep the street going. But the woman at the well, I know Brother Tim Green talked about this a few weeks ago. But this woman faced persecution. You know, it says that she was at the well at the hottest part of the day because she couldn't go with the other women because the looks that she got or the things they said behind her back or Quite honestly, they probably just said to her face. Um, and so she has to go by herself. And because she's by herself, she meets Jesus at the well. There's no distractions, nobody to undermine her, nobody to say anything about her past. It's just her and Jesus at a well. And Jesus begins to tell her of the living water that he can provide. And then he tells her all she ever did. And a woman who came in with shame, I can imagine her walking up the hill with her head down, not wanting anybody to see her because of the life that she was living. She leaves saying, see a man who told me all I ever did. She met a man who knew her past and still loved her. That the six men that she had been with wouldn't complete her, but the seventh man, Jesus, would. She found a man who loved her, who truly loved her for who she was, not for what she could do, but for who she was. So while Saul's persecution led to Paul's purpose, this woman's persecution gave her her purpose. 
gave her the opportunity to go, to go tell the men of the city, come see a man who all I ever did, who told me all I ever did. And so as I close tonight, if everyone wants to stand, my hope is that we can have an encounter with God like Paul and like the woman at the well did, where it's just you and Jesus. You don't have to worry about anybody else around you. You don't have to worry about looks. You don't have to worry anything where it's just you and the Lord, and you can have an encounter where your past doesn't matter, how you came in here doesn't matter, but all that matters is that it's you and Jesus. And then I hope that God helps you tonight to find your purpose. Like Paul's purpose was to carry his name to the Gentiles, or this woman's purpose was to become the first evangelist of the gospel. What's your purpose? What purpose does God have for you? What, what, what past have you tried to put away, but God really wants to use that to change your world? What testimony do you have that God wants you to share?